Well, maybe you think I've fallen off my rocker. Here we are in the middle of a sermon series on the book of Philippians, and of course, we are looking at a passage from the book of Acts, just read by Anne Marie. So why today are we in the book of Acts? Have I made a mistake? Have I fallen off my rocker? Are we not several books of the Bible behind where we should be? Well, we're looking at the book of Acts because it tells us a great deal about the Philippian church. The book of Acts provides important background information, important context for Paul's letter to the Philippians. It gives us insight into what he wrote and why. The book of Acts tells the astonishing story, and it is astonishing, you will see, the astonishing story of what happened when the gospel came to Philippi. The Apostle Paul is considered the greatest missionary to ever live. We know that Paul desired to take the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, all the way to the Iberian Peninsula, to Spain and to Portugal. In Romans chapter 15, towards the end of his letter to the Romans, he tells the Christians there, hey, I'm going to stop by to see you when I'm on my way to Spain. Look for me. Well, in that day, the Iberian Peninsula was the end of the known world. People didn't know what, if anything, lay beyond Spain and Portugal. And so what this means is that Paul's mission was to take the gospel as far as he could. His desire was to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, literally. Paul embarked on three great missionary journeys. Each time he began in the ancient city of Antioch, which is in modern-day Syria. Each time he traveled west, and each time he went a little bit farther west than he had before. So, for example, in his first missionary journey, he traveled to Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and he preached in cities like Lystra, Derby, and Iconium. But then in his second missionary journey, Paul went farther west. He went all the way to Europe. Philippi is the first city in Europe to which Paul went. From Philippi, he went to places like Corinth, Athens, Thessalonica, but Philippi was the first, the first city in Europe to which Paul went. A couple of weeks ago, our calendars read June 6, 2019. June 6, 2019 was the 75th anniversary of D-Day, and of course, D-Day was a major event in World War II. If you know only two things about World War II, it's probably December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor, and June 6, 1944, D-Day. On June 6, 1944, Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy in northern France, and their goal was to gain a foothold in continental Europe, which had long been lost to the Nazis. The Nazis controlled everything from Eastern Europe to the Atlantic Ocean. But if the Allies could gain just a foothold, just a foothold in the continent, then maybe, maybe Europe could be liberated from the Nazi regime. Well, the northern coast of France was the Allies' entry point into Europe. In a similar vein, Christianity's entry point into Europe was the city of Philippi. Think of it like this. Philippi was the gospel's Normandy. Philippi was the gospel's Omaha Beach. Philippi was Christianity's entry point into Europe. From Philippi, Christianity spread throughout the land. 
June 6, 1944 was D-Day. Maybe this could be called G-Day, Gospel Day, the day when Paul came to Philippi and the gospel reached Europe. So friends, let's open our Bibles, if we will, to the book of Acts. The book of Acts chapter 16 tells us that when Paul came to Philippi, he had three dramatic encounters. Three dramatic encounters with three very different people, all of whom come to know Christ as Savior and Lord. Let's read about what happened when Paul came to Philippi and the gospel reached Europe. When Paul came to Philippi, the first person that he met was a woman named Lydia. Lydia is a successful businesswoman. The Bible says that she is a dealer in purple cloth, a seller of purple goods. So in that day, it took a long and difficult process to produce purple dye. So purple cloth was rare and expensive. Purple cloth was a luxury item, like diamonds or gold. Only those who were royal or rich would wear purple. Lydia was from Thyatira, a city in Asia Minor that was famous for its expensive purple goods. And Lydia took those expensive purple goods to the right place, to Philippi a leading city in Macedonia. Philippi was large, it was populous, it was cosmopolitan, it it sat at a commercial crossroads. It was situated on the Ignatian Way, a major highway that connected the east and the west. It had close access to a port on the Mediterranean Sea, so it was ideal for doing business. We can safely assume that Lydia was wealthy, respected, privileged, and powerful. In society. It is no great leap to say that she's a member of the upper class. When Lydia sat down to have dinner, she had champagne and caviar. If the ancient city of Philippi were the modern city of Nashville, you might think of Lydia as Martha Ingram. So how does how does Lydia come to know the Lord? Well, Paul meets Lydia at a religious meeting. Lydia is a spiritual seeker. She is open and friendly to religious experience. Uh, So there's a small group of people, less than 10, a small group of people that had gathered by the river to worship God on the Sabbath day. Paul joins them, and he engages them in conversation, and he explains the scriptures to them. Now, the New Testament had, uh, it was still being lived and still being written, so when Paul explained the scriptures, he was explaining the Hebrew scriptures to them, and he was showing them how the Hebrew scriptures were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Well, as a result, Lydia's eyes are open. She has this epiphany, and she comes to know the Lord, and she's saved. That very day, she is baptized, and she becomes the first convert to Christianity in all of Europe. When Paul came to Philippi, the first person he meets is a woman named Lydia. The second person that he meets is a young girl. What do we know about her? Well, the first thing that we learn about Lydia is that she is a slave. Maybe she's kidnapped. Maybe she was taken in war. Maybe she was sold into slavery by poor, economically disadvantaged parents. That's unclear. Who knows? How she became a slave is unclear, but what is clear is that she is the exact opposite of Lydia. 
Lydia is a powerful businesswoman. This slave is a powerless, not even an employee, but a slave. One is at the top, the girl is at the bottom. Her captors use her and exploit her for economic profit. You see, the girl is possessed by a demon, and the demon makes her able to predict the future. And so her captors, her slave masters, take her around, and she tells people's fortunes, and then the captors collect the money and, coll- and keep it for themselves. The slave girl has no freedom, no power, no wealth, or privilege. If the ancient city of Philippi were the modern city of Nashville, you might think of Lydia as Martha Ingram. You might think of the slave girl as a victim of human trafficking. Maybe you know, or or maybe you don't, that human trafficking still exists in our day and age. It's amazing to me, but slavery is still a thing in our time. And Nashville, at the intersection of several major highways, is actually a hub for human trafficking. Who knew? Well, most definitely the slave girl is a member of the lower class. When the slave masters bother to give her any dinner, they give her stale bread and warm water. So how does the slave girl come to know the Lord? Well, put simply, Paul exercises the demon from her. Paul and the girl encounter each other on the street, and Paul says to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And with that, the girl is free. Free from the demon, free from her captors, free from a life of torment. But this creates a problem. Because she is liberated from demonic possession and because she is liberated from economic oppression, the girl's captors lose their asset. She is no longer useful to them for making money. They have lost their means of profit, and so they become angry. And they begin to stir up trouble for Paul and for Silas, who is Paul's colleague in the gospel. Uh, Paul and Silas are taken, they're beaten severely, and then they're thrown into jail. Thus, in the end... The girl is freed from her chains, but Paul and Silas are placed in chains. In effect, Paul and Silas substitute themselves for the slave girl. They switch places. Paul and Silas say to her, in effect, we will lose our freedom in order for you to gain yours. Well, this is bad news for Paul and Silas, but the silver lining is that it leads to a third conversion. When Paul came to Philippi, the first person he met was Lydia, the second person was a slave girl, and the third person is a Roman jailer, his jailer. What do we know about the jailer? Well, we can surmise that the jailer had been a soldier in the Roman army. Philippi was a Roman colony, and after Roman soldiers reached a certain age, uh, when they were beginning to slow down, they retired from active military duty, and they took jobs in the civil service. So once upon a time, this man conquered distant lands. Now retired, he works as a jailer. Now these jobs are valuable, and they're sought after. Uh, These jobs wouldn't make a person filthy rich, but they provided a reasonable consistent stream of income along with some benefits. This kind of job offered the stability, the security, and the dignity of a living wage. 
If the ancient city of Philippi were the modern city of Nashville, you might think of Lydia as Martha Ingram. You might think of the slave girl as a victim of human trafficking. You might think of the jailer as a municipal employee, a police officer, a public school teacher, a utility worker, or maybe the manager at the Green Hills post office. If Lydia is from the upper class and the slave girl is from the lower class and the jailer is squarely in the middle class, when the jailer goes out with friends at the end of the week, they all order pizza and beer. So how does the jailer come to know the Lord? Well, the jailer is charged with guarding Paul and Silas. In the Roman Empire, a guard was to discharge his duties at all costs. It was very serious. If he lost the prisoner, or if the prisoner somehow escaped, the guard would have to pay for it with his life. It was either the life of the prisoner or the life of the guard. And you could see how this would motivate a guard to do his duty. Well, Paul and his colleague Silas are praying and they're singing hymns. Even there in jail, they are praying and they are praising the Lord when suddenly around midnight there is a great earthquake. The door of their prison cell flies open and their chains come undone. Well, with the doors open and their chains undone, Paul and Silas are now able to escape. They can run and they can flee and gain their freedom. And yet, and yet, they choose to stay. They choose to stay because they know that if they escape, the jailer will be put to death. The jailer will lose his life. So even though Paul and Silas are imprisoned unjustly, even though they are uh, um, uh, cruelly treated by the jailer who puts their feet in the stocks, they spare the jailer's life. In effect, Paul and Silas say, we are willing to lose our lives if only you can keep yours. Well, the jailer sees this and he is moved. He is moved by their act of kindness and compassion. And he goes to them and he says, what must I do to be saved? The jailer says to Paul and Silas, you have something that I don't. You have something that, that I want. Something is different about you. You know someone that I don't know. What is it? What must I do to be saved? Well, Paul and Silas witness to Jesus Christ, and the jailer is baptized, he and his whole household. Lydia, the businesswoman, the slave girl, and the Roman jailer. When the gospel came to Philippi, my friends, Christianity gained a foothold in Europe. From Philippi, the gospel spread throughout the continent. People heard the good news of Jesus Christ, and they were saved. And over the centuries, billions of Europeans would come to know the Lord. People like Thomas Aquinas, Joan of Arc, Michelangelo, Johann Sebastian Bach, William Wilberforce, J.R.R. Tolkien, and the Albanian-born Mother Teresa. But friends, consider this. Consider this. Of the billions of people in Europe who had come to know the Lord, numbers one, two, and three are right here in Philippi. The successful businesswoman, the demon-possessed slave girl, and the Roman jailer. This was the birth of the church in Europe 
And friends, this is amazing, astonishing, and completely unexpected. And let me try to tell you why it was so amazing. Observant Jews, Jews who were religiously faithful, they would pray at regular times throughout the day, morning, afternoon, and evening. In ancient times, in the days of the Bible, Jewish men would rise in the morning and they would recite a series of prayers. And one of those prayers went like this. Listen closely to what it says. O Lord, I thank you that you did not make me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Okay, on a scale of one to ten, how condescending is that? Oh, Lord, I thank you that you did not make me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. I mean, what if I went up to Abby and Anne Marie and I said, I am so glad that God did not make me a woman. And what if I went to someone else and I said, I am so glad that I am not working class, that I'm not blue collar, that I don't make a living with my hands. Uh, what if I went up to somebody and said, I am so glad that I'm not insert derogatory name for a different race. I am so glad that I am not, insert the name of the opposing political party. Friends, isn't this amazing? The traditional morning prayer of a Jewish male was, oh Lord, I thank you that you did not make me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. And the first three converts to Christianity are Lydia, a demon-possessed girl, and a Roman jailer. A woman, a slave, and a Gentile. Friends, I think this is precisely what Paul means when he writes to the Corinthians, God chose what is foolish in the eyes of the world in order to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the eyes of the world in order to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no one may boast before the Lord. God, in his infinite wisdom and sovereign grace, chose those whom the world despised to be the first Christians in all of Europe. And when he did this, he gave us a beautiful blueprint for the church in the world. He gave us a blueprint, a model, a plan for the rest of the church. The church was beautiful in Philippi, and it was beautiful for two reasons. The Philippian church was beautiful for its breathtaking diversity. It was a church with both women and men. The successful businesswoman Lydia and the Roman jailer. Other religions and other traditions, they segregate men and women. They segregate the sexes but not here in the Corinthian church. There were both women and men. It was a church with both the young and the old, the little girl who was once a slave and a retiree with salt and pepper in his beard. The Philippian church included different socioeconomic classes, upper class, lower class, and everyone in between. Lydia may have eaten champagne and caviar, the girl may have been given warm water and stale bread. The jailer may have ordered pizza and beer, but they all gathered together in gladness around the table of the Lord. A little bit of wine and some unleavened bread. High, low, middle, all, everyone was included. 
The Philippian church boasted people of different races and ethnic groups. Lydia was from the city of Thyatira in Asia Minor. She would have had dark skin, dark hair, and dark eyes. The Roman jailer was Anglo-European. The girl, being a slave, could have come from really anywhere. For the sake of argument, let's just say that she's from Asia. Every race, every nation, every people, tribe, and tongue, they all came together around the cross of Jesus Christ. The Philippian church was beautiful in its breathtaking diversity. Such diversity would not have been seen anywhere else in all of society. When Paul came to Philippi and the gospel came to Europe, a church with diversity but without division was born. That's the other thing that made the Philippian church so wonderful. It had diversity, but it did not have division. You know, other churches really struggled with division. The Corinthian church, for example, was fraught with conflict. In the Corinthian church, church members actually sued each other. They sued other church members in courts of law. And this was horrifying to St. Paul. When Paul found this out, he was aghast. He had some stern things to say to the Corinthians. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I say this to your shame. Do you think that no one among you is wise enough to judge a dispute that you have to go out to the courts of law? Instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. What sort of witness is this to the rest of the world that the Christians are suing each other? Wouldn't you rather be wronged? Wouldn't you rather be cheated than to take a brother or sister to court? The Corinthian church struggled with conflict and division. The Galatian church did too. To the Galatians, Paul wrote, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, man or woman, slave or free, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Paul was chiding the Galatians. He was chastising them. He had to remind them that in the eyes of God, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, man or woman, slave or free, but all are one in Christ Jesus. Paul had to lay down the law with the Corinthian church and the Galatian church but he didn't have to do that with the Philippian church. To them, all he could say is, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. When Paul wrote his letter to the Philippians, he smiled. I know he did. Even though he was sitting in a jail cell in the city of Rome, when he wrote this letter, I know that he smiled Paul was probably hoping and praying, just itching to get out of that jail cell so that he could move forward and take the gospel to Spain. Timothy, Paul's protege, carried the letter from Rome all the way back to Philippi. And when Timothy arrived in Philippi, guess where he went? He went to the house of Lydia. Lydia had opened her home to the believers. She had shown hospitality to the church. Her home had become a center for ministry. She hosted meetings and services there. The believers gathered there so that they could pray and worship the Lord and gather around communion and focus on the apostles' teaching. So when the Philippians, when the Christians in the city of Philippi got word that Paul had written a letter, they all gathered at her home. 
Among them there was a young girl, probably still a teenager, who had once been a slave. Without parents, without family, I am guessing that a Christian family took her into their home and made her one of theirs. Also in the group was an older man, still strong, still muscular. He was a real jock, and yet his heart was completely yielded to the Lord. Many others gathered with them, people who were like them and people who were unlike them. Timothy stood before them, unrolled the scroll of Paul's letter, and he read these words. Whenever I think of you, I thank the good Lord above. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.